hey, welcome in to another episode of Stub Me Down. My name is JW, and as always, I am here with my best friend, Skinny. Skinny, say hello to the people, my friend. Good to see you today. Uh, it's good to see you, man. I'm really excited for today. A lot has happened. A lot of guests and some new things that we're learning about, not only the scene, but also about people's experiences with music kind of outside of that. The We Are Everywhere conversation continues today, j Yeah, man. I'm excited to get into today's episode. And as we started off our third season with Jake Jolivet, who is the infamous Fox Sports producer who sprinkles in fish music and other related jam band music into NFL broadcasts that kicked our season off. And then on the last episode, Skinny, we talked about a Grateful Dead show from June 26, 1993 at RFK. You stubbed me down on that one, which was a lot of fun. And we talked about this when we've had other Grateful Dead shows as the focus and We're talking about Grateful Dead periods that I'm not that familiar with, and 93 fit that bill to a T. Great show, though. Vince was really good. I really enjoyed listening to that RFK run just to get a a good feel for where Vince was at the time. Bruce Hornsby played sometimes awkwardly and sometimes where it blended in. He was on the harpsichord what the fuck was he playing accordion it's an accordion man it's an accordion (laughs) it's not that it's it's a crazy looking instrument i mean it is right yeah (laughs) well my dad plays a a similar thing called a concertina which is a small handheld same type of thing with buttons on the fingers and i used to listen to that growing up but anyway bruce hornsby on the accordion here sometimes kind of got washed out by vince But there were some cool segments there where Bruce and Jerry were kind of going back and forth. And this show was pretty cool. A great feel like a stranger that kicked it off was just super high energy and a really nice touching version, really airy and and flowing version of Birdsong in that first set. And then the second set, that playing in the band, the Terrapin Station, which was gorgeous, one of the most serene idyllic versions i think i've heard of terrapin especially you know post 1980 so i was really really happy to get into that and you know me skinny i love a good statistic and there were some cool ones to pull out of there the liberty encore statistic which i thought was pretty mind blowing and then also where the grateful dead were as a band at this time a lot of songs that were 80s and 90s vintage and not so much the older 60s and 70s set list makeup. So I thought that the show itself was pretty cool and definitely intrigued me about where the Grateful Dead was. And as we talked about in that episode, hard to believe that just a little bit more than two years later, the band would be done. Jerry would be gone and but nonetheless, still a cool show to talk about. So, I, and I, you know what? As I said, dude, I love, I love getting into those experiences that you had following the Grateful Dead. It's just so intriguing to me, and just so much fun to hear those to hear those stories. You know, listening to what you had to say about your feelings about that show kind of sums up, I think, like '90s Dead, which is it began to be more poppy, and I don't mean the songwriting. I mean like. It was part of popular culture. Sometimes students ask me about, you know, what did you listen to when you were a kid, like when you were going to school here, blah, 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 because I teach where I went to school. 
I think the interesting conversation I have with them is like, who do you like right now? And of course they say, you know, Kanye, little Uzi Vert. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> like <laughs> if he walked into my house tomorrow, I'd be like, hey, what's up? I, you know, I have no idea who you are. And I'm like, OK, we'll take those guys. And, and around the time that I was really getting into music deeply, there was a band called The Grateful Dead, and they were really everything to me. I mean, they were my everything. It took every part of the fiber of my being not to try to catch on and follow them more than I did already. So, you know, regionally, I was kind of locked into the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. But I mean, hey, they were out here all the time. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about shows at the Cap Center, RFK. I mean, they were playing this MSG, region. Philly. I mean, you know, it, listen, yeah. if you're not really familiar with the East Coast, it's three hours. Baltimore is pretty centrally located, even for, you know, Southern shows, which you could do it. So it was always something that you wanted to do. I love remembering those scenes. And that's going to bring us into today, which I'm really excited about this conversation, JW, because... All those things we just kind of briefly mentioned on the surface, we're going to kind of tap into today. Yeah, man. Absolutely. So we are welcoming Peter Connors. Peter Connors is primarily an author, and he has written 11 books of nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. And he actually has a book coming out this spring called Merch Table Blues. So welcome Peter Connors in. Peter, thanks for being with us today, man. We're really, really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me, Skinny. JW, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Peter, thank you so much for being with us. This is a cool experience for us. And as Skinny said, we've been kind of taking a look at this We Are Everywhere conversation. And you're an author that has incorporated the jam band music scene and sound into your works. Your most recent book that's coming out in May is Merch Table Blues, which follows a small band from Burlington and a writer who is friends with the lead guitarist and joins the band for a fall tour. And some things happen uh, along the way there. I don't want to give away the ghost here as far as what the full story is about, but you pull in certain elements that echo probably the early fish scene. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience as a music fan kind of influenced the direction of not just this book, but some of the other books that you've written? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go back and say, you know, I, I, I was always, you know, from the time I was little, little, um, a huge music fan. I had older siblings and so got exposed to all the music they were listening to in the 70s. So when I discovered The Grateful Dead in about 1985, I was about 15 years old, 14, 15. I was incredibly intrigued. They sounded um, kind of like nothing I had ever heard before. And I, being a word person and, and always interested in words and books and, and writing and reading and stuff, the lyrics also really intrigued me. And I thought they were, they were just coming at a different level than I had heard. So I got really taken by that. And then um, shortly after I went to my first uh, show in 1987 at Kingswood Music Theater. And from that point on, I was just hooked. You know, I, I went to as many shows as I could and did all sorts of stuff to get there and, and all those things, on, you know, going on tour and all that. Eventually, I ended up at Potsdam College, which was fairly close to Burlington. Um, it's way, way up north, nice, nice and cold up there. 
And so we started, now this is about 90, 80, it's like 1990, right? So we started to get, um, my first times hearing fish were probably fillers on Grateful Dead bootleg tapes. I love the fillers. Yeah. Yeah. And then we started to get other tapes, you know, that was just them. And then I believe we had like Lawn Boy, you know, so, so this is like 90, 91. So a bunch of people that I were hanging out, that I was hanging out with and a bunch of deadheads, but also just music fans and also music students. I'm at Potsdam. There's a place called Crane School of Music. So these were people who studied music, um, you know, at a, at a really high level. And they had such, they had a completely different reason for appreciating fish, you know, on this, on this real high end musical level, technical wise, you know. And anyway, so then um, in 91 for Earth Day at Potsdam, a bunch of my friends were in control of sort of the fund, you know, for entertainment for that. And um, we decided to, to bring fish up. So fish came up and played at Potsdam in 1991 for free on Earth Day. Nice. You know, I mean, it was very like homespun kind of thing. I mean, we helped carry in their equipment and helped set up and all that stuff. And Somebody we, was making tie-dyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trey's dog was wandering around. We had snuck a keg into the little student union thing. And, and you know, at one point I, I, we were unloading the van and I went into the van and uh, Fishman was in there. And the only things left in there were the were the vacuum and the trampolines. And I'd never seen them before. You know, I'd heard some. And I was like, well, do you do you need this, you know, the vacuum? Oh, yeah, I play that. Like, <laughs> right, man. You know, uh, so what the fuck? Right, carry the vacuum out. You know, do you need these? Yep, we use the trampolines too. Okay, cool. So lo and How behold, do you I carry mean, this? Yeah, right. So you listen to that show and there's a huge vacuum solo right in the middle. Um, and I got to roadie the vacuum for that. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. But anyway, so, you know, that that was my sort of segue into the fish scene from the dead scene. And then I was doing both. But I really enjoyed those fish shows in the early to mid 90s for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, the scene itself was was kind of refreshing because the dead scene had gotten so big and there was just a lot to navigate and fish was super easy to navigate and you just go get tickets. There was never an issue, you know, and I'm talking about clubs and all this stuff. So when it comes to Merch Table Blues, the book, what I really sort of modeled as far as the level of where the band is at in the book was that sort of 90, 91, 92, you know, space of playing at clubs you have a following, you know, there's some tapers there starting to do their thing, but it's still pretty low key. It's still small. And then the real concept of the book is what if a band with a cult following, what if it was an actual cult? And so I call it a sex, drugs, rock and roll and murder mystery. And it's basically like, as you go along tour, you know, there are murders happening. You're not sure who it is. You meet all the band members, you meet people in this cult um, that's following the band uh, that turns out to be an actual cult. And, uh, you know, it's it's meant to be a good, fun rip through this whole world. And I think for people coming from this, the scene, you know, coming from the fish scene or even the dead scene, I tried to sprinkle little Easter eggs throughout it, too. So you'll recognize, you know, maybe the name of a club got changed a little bit, but you'll recognize it for sure. Or even names I use of characters and different things. So you know, you don't have to know these things when you read the book, but I think if you're into this stuff and you read the book, you'll find a lot to sort of go like, ah, yeah, here's a little clue right there. I like that stuff. I, I mean, I, you know, even in, at, at 51 years old, I still remember like arcades and like Easter eggs. Like people think that's a relatively new term. It's not, you know, it's, it's a pretty old term, which I love, especially from a literary standpoint, because as an English teacher, 
I'm really also interested in your literary journey. Like, how do you get to this point where this is what you want to write about? Because reading the book, it's obvious how you took mental pictures of the scene that I remember and I connect to that which I really like as somebody, you know, I, I was a big reader. I took some time off after grad school. I did grad school really late and then was like, I don't want to read again. But, you know, reading your book, I, I remember those experiences. And I read your book, Growing Up Dead, a long time ago, probably when it was first published within a year or two, I'm sure. I, I, I looked at the publishing date, but you could probably help me out with that. It was like 11 years ago now, which is amazing to me. But yeah, so whatever that is, take take now minus 11, I guess. Yeah, I picked it up at, at a bookstore. I was like, ah, I'm going to read this. So those experiences for me are, is like what I want to hear you kind of expound upon. And so your experience, not only with writing, but then also writing about the scene. Like, can you give us a little bit about how you approach that and, and how that came to be? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, you know, again, I was always interested in words and language and writing. And I will say like, I was not a successful student in high school, <laughs> but I was always writing on my own. You know, I was always had my own thing going. I was writing poems and I was writing different things and I would share them with friends, but it was really disconnected from what I was doing in school. So when I got into the dead scene and I started to meet people, it opened up all these other doorways to other art forms, including books and writing and literature. And I think maybe more importantly, it showed me that there were paths to living an artistic life um, that I hadn't necessarily seen in the suburb that I was growing up in. You know, that there wasn't that wasn't really modeled in, in that setting. So I really just sort of broadened my perspectives and horizons for what is possible, you know, to live as far as our, you know, an artist's life and pursuing that. And so those things combined, and I really developed and worked on my stuff as a writer in tandem with being into the scene. And then at a certain point, you know, after college, I realized that for me, I would have to focus on my art at the same level that the musicians that I love focused on their bands. Right. In other words, I had to put everything into that. And I, I sort of at that point stopped, you know, going to a whole bunch of shows and doing all that stuff. I would when I could. But my thing is like, this is this is my equivalent and I need to put everything into that. So at that point, you know, all the traveling that I did or all the extra, you know, any spare time or any spare money or whatever went into supporting me becoming a writer and figuring out how to do that. And for the most part, I'm self-taught that way. I went to an MFA program in fiction writing for one semester at Naropa Boulder, and then I dropped out. But I was always <laughs> writing, 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 you know, a ton and reading and trying to educate myself. So I learned really how to write by just doing it over and over. And I had written, you know, novels and th that haven't been published and sort of didn't work and put them aside. <clears throat> Excuse me, Merch Table Blues. I wrote the first draft of this and it was called something different over 20 years ago. And so the concept was there. And this time of touring in these clubs was extremely fresh in my mind because it was just not that long. You know, it was kind of all at the same time. Right. So I was able, you know, I've chipped away at it since then. And I've done different drafts and versions. I certainly haven't been working on it for 20 years, but I pick it up, I put it down, I go back to it. And so I think one of the cool things now is I was able to take all that stuff that I remembered really, you know, from being fresh into the scene and then add to it all that I've learned with writing in that 20 years since then. 
and put together something that, you know, I think evokes and brings out the scene really, really clearly, but also will grab you and pull you through and keep you reading, you know, page after page and uh, hopefully like ripping through it. And I always, I picture this book and I hope this is what happens. You know, I'd love to see people taking it on tour this summer and passing it around and see it in some, you know, on some dashboards and some back seats and dog-eared pages and ticket stubs stuck in there or whatever, you know what I mean? Like this is- Those are nice details. Nice to be treated that yeah. way. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, that's amazing because those are nice details to talk about life because that right there in and of itself, that's the life that you want to see. And those are the memories that you want to kind of connect to. That's a, a lot of times it's like, I want to do this to become this. And they're not really connecting the experience. I, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, one of the coolest things that I've ever heard for Growing Up Dad is, and I don't know if they're still doing it, but for a long time, someone had started this thing of, people write their name or write a note in the book and then pass it to somebody else at a show. And there was a book that had gone around and around and apparently, you know, one copy and it had tons of like signatures and notes and everything like that. I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. I wonder if it's still going around. If it isn't, anybody hears this, send me a picture. But, you know, it's always incredible to hear from people who have read, you know, any of my books and, you know, say like this, you captured what I love about this community, this scene, this music, um, in a way that, you know, I haven't seen anybody do before because we all have downtime in between shows. And I think to be able to pick up a book or pick up something that helps you tap into that in a different way than just listening to the music, you know, it's different to read about it is great. And I love to, to support the scene that way too. Yeah, that's awesome. One of the things I was thinking about as I read the book was, and it's told from the first person perspective of this character, Virgil, who is a an aspiring writer who drops out of grad joins school. this, <laughs> drops out of grad school and joins on with this band to be their roadie to sell stuff at the merch table. But he's really kind of searching for some meaning, some purpose. And I think a lot of us have that unconscious feeling when we involve ourselves with music. It's, you know, we're searching for something. That's one of the things that Skinny and I talk about all the time here on Stummy Down is what is it about that live music experience that keeps pulling you back? You know, and in some cases, it's it's just a good time. It's a party. But for a lot of us, there are much deeper meanings within the music. So Virgil is kind of searching for himself and the meaning of life, I guess, or some purpose. So I was thinking, I mean, are you Virgil, in, in some sense, as far as where you were at this time of your life and trying to figure out how you could move forward or take something that you were really interested in, which was writing it. And what do you write about? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there, there is, I, yes, there is a lot of, of me, especially at that time in Virgil. And, you know, I'll tell you something funny is that, you know, the ba it's a, based on a band out of Burlington. Ironically, like the band's house, which almost becomes its own character, you know, in the book and all that stuff. So I played in a band in college and after college, that band went up to Burlington to sort of like, you know, launch themselves and get together. They lived in this big band house. They played around. So even though, you know, there's a ton of fish in here, that house and a lot of the band stuff is actually not based on fish. It's based on my old band that had moved to Burlington right. to play. <laughs> Any 20 year olds like place that they live the the yeah. beer can river by the side of the house was like my i was like exactly. i've seen that 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, these are all things that, we, that you, you see along the way. And, and, you know, even being down in the basement and hearing the band like rehearsing and what that sounds like and the gear laying all over and all that stuff, you know, this is any band rehearsal space, any, you know, thing like that. But anyway, so, so that, you know, I, I, drove up there and I, they were working, you know, they wanted to become a band and do that thing. And I wanted to be a writer. And so, you know, that was me driving up to Burlington to go hang out in the band house and see what they were doing. And it was a big house like that. And that was what was in the basement, you know, so it it was very much like that. And I did, because I had traveled so much with the dead, I, I had already felt like I knew that part of like having experiences is important to becoming a writer. But that is such an ingrained part of my how I did become a writer and and my belief in how you do something, you know, like that, um, that that's in there, too. So he struggles more with it than I did. But I think, you know, that tension was important to the book. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of there is a lot of me, especially at that point in time in Virgil and, you know, my interest in music and also you know, as much as this is the sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, murder book, it's also about friendship. Right, right. And how do people, how do you connect? How do you learn how to trust? How do you, you know, how do people change over time and how do friendships adapt? And there's a lot of that. And I think that that is something that, you know, maybe doesn't get investigated as much um, in, in different books. And that's, that's an important part of this too. And that's, you know, that's, again, these are things that we all deal with in real life and live and all that. So I, hopefully it's really universal too. Yeah. I think I, I, first of all, the one thing I really loved about Richard, the lead guitarist of the band that's in the book, um, is that he also hates country music. (laughs) (laughs) Get a good chuckle out of that. But the idea of music being a vehicle for experience here. And I think that that's something that Skinny and I have kind of dealt with both individually and then when we became friends 23 years ago was that music becomes the vehicle for these other experiences. And the music is central to it, but then there are all of these things that happen around the music, people you meet and experiences that happen and and that really, I feel, is is characterized very well through this story. One of the things that really comes through from the first pages is this sense of foreboding that is kind of weaved throughout the story. You know, something weird or negative or nefarious is happening, and you do a really nice job of giving that feeling to the reader. Is that something that you saw in your early experiences with music that you reflected into the book? And we know, obviously, there's an an undercurrent of drug use that happens as a part of the jam band music scene. It's There are people that you know, certainly use drugs recreationally, but because of the readily available access to substances, it becomes a, you know, a situation where there is a lot of addiction within the scene. So is that something that you saw reflected or did you kind of create that out of your own imagination um, and inserted into some of these other kind of reflective scenarios and, and situations that happen as a part of the story? Yeah. I, that's a good question. I think, you know, a little of both. I, I look at this as, um, as like Western New York noir, 
So, you know, noir books are sort of like this. There's a lot of L.A. noir books that are sort of like uh, detective hard boiled stuff. And they have this like heavy, this heavy tone. I took a course on that in grad school. I took a course on that and I hated it. <laughs> but I do like noir. But the guy made me read too much. That was the problem. <laughs> so so that tone goes with that, you know, and I think there is also this the, the character, the narrator himself is very angsty, you know, and trying to figure out what he's going to do. And there's a lot of anxiety around that. And so that tone also went there. And of course, the fact that there was, you know, murders and it's dark and all that stuff. So so that all contributed. And at the same time, I am always aware that, you know, there are lots of parts of the scene that people maybe don't want to talk about as much or don't want to deal with as much or acknowledge. And I think in a lot of ways that does a disservice to the full range of what's out there in the community. And and by that, I mean, you know, there are people who are not just in it for the love of the music, like you may be or community or whatever. You know, there are people who are, who prey on other people. There are people who take advantage of other people. You know, there are federal agencies that look forward to the band coming through so that they can put on their Halloween costumes and arrest you. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of stuff that goes on that right. I think, you know, again, it's not the fun stuff to talk about. We want to talk about the music. We would talk about the connections and, and the joy and all that stuff as we should. You know, that, that is what brings us back. But I think especially, you know, for younger people who are maybe getting into it to just be aware, you know, that there is a big range of folks out there in the scene. And some of it does get dark. And that's always been the case. I mean, you go back to you know, the hate Ashbury days of, you know, the Grateful Dead and the, you know, 66, 67 and all that stuff, you know, by the late 60s, that whole summer of love, you know, all that stuff had turned into a really sketchy scene that was riddled with speed and you know, sexual assaults and people taking advantage of all these kids who had gone out there to live you know, right. because of the summer. Manson didn't help at all. Manson, you know, all this stuff. So, Altamont happened, you know, shortly after the big stabbing and all that. So, right. you know, there's always, it's the yin yang, you know, there's always the other side. And I do think it's important to remember that. I don't think it diminishes anything. I think if anything, it just shows you that the scene in the community reflects the full range of life outside of it too. Yeah. And I agree. Cause I, listen, when I first started seeing him, I saw the Grateful Dead in 87, just like you did. Fall Tour was like the first time I'd ever seen him. And Cap Center and RFK were, that's where I saw him probably the most the first couple of years. Fall, summer, spring tour, because they were playing there all the time. And just the Yellow Jackets. And it really just this kind of mentality of like cracking skulls. It was a really, really weird undercurrent of things that were happening in the lot, but also from a perspective of policing. And Josh and I have talked about this on the show before. It's just, why did they play certain songs? Well, they played them because they were, we know who you are. We're thumbing our nose at you. We're the Grateful Dead. But also the scene outside, it was like out of control at times, you know, especially like an RFK in the summer for a two-night run. I mean, we just talked about a two-night run, uh, one of the show's uh, last episode. So it's just crazy how you take that kind of underbelly or undercurrent of that scene. And I know you remember the Adam Katz situation as well, too. It's like, those are memories that I have that I never put down into a paper. And for you to be able to do that and to have that come out in a different way, obviously, it's not about that specifically, but it is about that underbelly, that scene that there is a mystical side to it. That's bad juju, I guess. But it, it is nice to be informed as a, a young fan about what that bad juju is. 
Yeah, you know, it's, so I don't know if this, this will resonate with anybody, so you'll have to bear with me, but there's a big maroon bus that goes to shows and they are called Yashua's. Do you know what I'm talking about, Skinny, right? That big red. I do. I know that. You, Josh, you've seen that bus. I didn't know they were called Yashua's. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. No, I don't, I don't recall off the top of my head, but I'll take your word for it, Skinny. You you look around and, and they, they do go to fish shows, right, Skinny? Yes, they do. Yeah. I've seen it. Okay. Yeah. So, so they were on the dead scene like well, well before that. And they are a cult. They will like recruit people from the scene. They'll hand out literature. They'll bring you into that little bus and they'll give you all sorts of things and they'll make you feel good. Um, and then eventually you, you know, people end up getting in there and all your money goes to them and you end up working for them and recruiting and all this stuff. You know, there's all sorts of cults. I mean, uh, not all of them are bad, but that's one that I always had an issue with because it seemed to really be preying again on the scene. There was a reason they were at dead shows. There's a reason they're at fish shows now. You know, there's a lot of young people who are feeling a little lost and disconnected and maybe not linked up with their families and maybe a little strung out and whatever it might be looking for something. And that's a good place for people to recruit and uh, for cults specifically to recruit. And I remember I saw Fish on New Year's Eve in 1991 in Worcester. And it was still a very small scene then. It was a really cool little venue. But I remember getting out and you know, getting out of the car and walking up to the show. And that was the first time that I saw the Yashua bus at a fish show. So this was a long time back. And it really hit me like, all right. It, it's almost like, you know, the canary in the coal mine. I was like, man, they, they're on to this. Like, this is the next thing that's happening. And they were already there in 1991. And something in my brain clicked over and I just thought, oh, okay. It's, it, it was a dark, it was, it was a little ominous to me. You know, it was a little, um, it was, because I had had issues with them and I had gotten into arguments with them and I really was not, you know, I'm not a fan. <laughs> and so that clicked for me. And I think there is that, that error definitely carries over into merch table blues. You know, there is that sort of sense of like, this is a good recruiting ground. And this is again, why I think it's important for people to talk about this aspect of the scene too, especially for younger folks. Well, the transient and drifting nature of a tour, of a touring act like Fish or the Grateful Dead or Widespread Panic or any of the bands that people follow with regularity and in some situations to the factor of almost religiousness, I think lends itself to that type of vibe. You know, you've got kids that are scraping from one city or town to the next for months at a time. And there probably is that sense of isolation, that looking for belonging. I mean, Virgil was looking for some sense of purpose. And I think he was trying to maybe connect with the music in order to find that, at least in kind of my estimation here. And he was wary of what some of the nefarious elements of the scene were, the Lavernites and things like that. But, you know, it's a, it's a population of people that is ripe for this type of scenario to take hold and to thrive and prey on the transients who follow a band religiously from city to city across the country, you know, and they're at a young age and they are, chances are altered in some state, whether it's booze or whether it's drugs. And that 
lends itself, I think, to even more susceptibility to these types of concepts and ideas. And, and especially if it's being packaged in such a way that provides a sense of belonging, I think that that's not a, a leap to see how that happens. Yeah. And I, you know, I really, I'm, I was interested in, in, in this book in particular about sort of walking that line between, again, you know, the difference between having, having a sort of a cult following and an actual cult, you know, um, that line between like obsession and then when it tips over into, you know, the, that sort of darker area of obsession, you know, um, being yeah, a, fanaticism, fanaticism. Yeah. All those things. And, and generally, you know, the trajectory of groups like that, you know, cults or, or different things like that is a lot of times they start in, in a much more benign way. You know, they start in this sort of like more idealistic way. And then, you know, they say ultimate power um, or absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. I should say. So, I mean, you know, then people gain power and they get power over other people and things take a darker turn. And, you know, this is, and ironically, this is also the trajectory of many bands, you know, they right. start out and everything on the same page and there's a lot of idealism and we're going to do this all together. And then, you know, things have a way of becoming a, a behind the music VH1 episode for those, <laughs> those who remember that reference. Right. Um, Maybe I should start bringing a copy of Animal Farm too to, to shows and giving it to people. <laughs> egos take over, you know, money comes in, egos take over, drugs can, you know, come into the scene. We've seen it with our own favorite bands, you know, things can splinter. In a lot of ways, I'm also saying like, there's not that huge a difference between a band and a cult. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who's been really tight with a band and seen them, you know, sort of living with them day in, day out or whatever, seen them trying to make it and all that stuff, like they're, the amount of faith in yourself and dedication and hard work it takes is obsessive. Like you have to be obsessive to make it as a band. You really do. And to, to see that up close and on the inside, you realize like it does become a little cult and the people around the band become, you know, just as dedicated to supporting that band. And, and then just sort of goes out, you know, in these concentric waves. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you walk around the parking lot at a fish show and everybody's got the Fishman donuts on as a watch band or a belt or a pair of socks. And I have all right. of those things, by the way, right. and a backpack. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's absurd to the point of, of absurdity. And I'm always interested in, How's a good one? I'm interested in, you know, in writing in particular, you know, the, the different ways that um, subcultures, that groups signal to each other membership within those groups, you know? And so really what you're talking about are ways to show and to also recognize other people who are part of your group. And I think that's one way that we connect with each other, that we bond and we go like, oh, you're, you're that, you're this, you know, and we do that all sorts of ways, you know, and it could be. A, we are everywhere. It could, yeah. Right. And that could be, you know, a, a rich lady with a handbag, you know what I mean? And she's signaling something or it's, you know, something else, whatever it might be. So we do it all the time. Um, it's just more obvious when it's big orange circles. <laughs> Talk about getting pulled into a wormhole. When we, after we had spoken the other day, I I looked up the Adam Katz story. That was something that I had heard about, but didn't really know much about. So I looked into that a little bit when I was preparing for today's episode, and I found a podcast called Dead and Gone, which talks about a number of different deaths that occurred 
around the Grateful Dead scene. The focus was on these two deadheads. The first season of Dead and Gone focused on these two deadheads, Mary and Greg, who were killed at a homeless encampment in San Francisco called Rainbow Village. But their second season featured an episode where they talked about Adam Katz's death and the suspicious nature and what happened and how they were trying to utilize the community to find out what actually happened to him and just a very interesting underbelly of the scene that I'm sure a lot of people, especially nowadays, because the kids that are following fish now or goose or whoever, they didn't know what the Grateful Dead scene was like, especially as the Grateful Dead really took off in the late 80s and 90s and became this cultural phenomenon where you had people who weren't necessarily fans of the music that were going for the experience. You know, they're going to a giant stadium show or RFK or wherever and experiencing a stadium concert with the Grateful Dead and the somewhat lawless nature that existed as a part of that traveling circus. And (laughs) yeah, man, crazy shit. You're talking about dozens of incidents where somebody died or something sketchy happened as a result of or being around the Grateful Dead scene. And so I thought that that was really interesting and kind of reflected a little bit of what your book is about and and some of the themes that you explore throughout the story of Laverna and this fall tour, which I really love the descriptions too, because Skinny and I have driven around in upstate New York going to Watkins Glen and Saratoga Springs and, and stuff like that. So it was cool. I could actually picture them driving around on some of those roads as they went from spot to spot. And I tell you what, it was a page turner towards the end, man. <laughs> I could, I had, I had to figure out what the hell happened here. And so a good, a good quick read too. Um, if you are a voracious reader, you'll be done with this one in no time at all. Yeah. And I also wanted to say like, as I looked at your bio, Cornell 77, which I mean, if you're a deadhead, you love that show or those two shows, right? Five, eight, five, nine. And it's the five, eight, like ticket stubs. And I wanted to get your personal perspective because ticket stubs are such a big deal. And obviously they're a big deal to Josh and I, (laughs) and there aren't any more ticket stubs, which I'm going to miss. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because you were a part of that. And it's interesting to hear what people remember about ticket stubs and tickets in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like mail ordering tickets for the Grateful Dead back in the day. You know, when when the tour was announced, you had to you you could mail order for tickets, which literally meant like there was very specific ways that you had to do this. And it had to be a certain size envelope and you had to write exact, very specific things on this index card that went in the envelope process and you couldn't screw around with it. You know, everything had to be perfect. Deadheads were very paranoid about this stuff and wanting to get it right. And then also a lot of people would decorate the envelopes to try and get the attention of the people at, you know, the Grateful Dead who were going through and, you know, giving tickets out and stuff like that. So, you know, that that's the first thing I think of when I come to when it comes to tickets, because that was such a part of the process and a part of the ritual. And then um, the, the mail order tickets themselves were really often beautiful and sort of decorated and they had sparkles and they had right. designs and all this stuff. Um, and I have a ton of these ticket stubs, you know, that I've saved over over time. And they're just really fun to look back through. In preparing to talk to you guys, I went through a bunch of stubs and I found like ones to fish shows that I've forgotten that I even went 
two, didn't even realize. <laughs> like I went and saw them in Nebraska in 1995. I kind of forgotten that that had happened and been a thing. Um, drove from Colorado to Nebraska, saw the show and turned around and drove back. And, you know, so they also are cool, just mementos to have. But, you know, then the other sort of like, and I thought of this the other day, I saw Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers and, you know, people were had their finger up for tickets out front. And my friend said, how do you even do that now? Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, on, it's all on our phones. So, like, I can't, like, give somebody this ticket or whatever. And, you know, I guess it had never really occurred to me at that level. Like, oh, yeah, that's a big difference. And it reminded me of a fish show at CMAC in, in Canandaigua in New York. And this might have been the last time I had, like, a real, like, paper ticket for a fish show, I guess. I don't know. But I had an extra one. And I was going in and I spent all day looking for just the perfect person to give this ticket to because I knew I was going to miracle somebody with it and just give it to them. And and right before the show, I was going in and I saw this guy standing there and he, you know, had his finger up and he clearly like had been going to a bunch of shows. He clearly didn't have much money, you know, if any to spend or anything. And he was just the right person to give it to. So I gave him this ticket. And I remember he looked at me and he was like, you know, how much? And he was really concerned. And, I said, you know, nothing, just go and enjoy the show. And he lost his mind. And and to be able to do that, you know, for somebody is I've had that done for me. I, I, you know, I'd love to be able to do it for other people, but it is an interesting concept of how do you miracle somebody without a paper ticket? So give me your phone number. I don't have a phone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I, I really don't know. It's probably, it's probably really easy. And people are laughing that I don't even understand. Well, it's like, you know, I don't have email. (laughs) Right. Well, skinny, there won't be any more ticket trees, I guess, you know? No. Yeah. In Hampton in 2000 (laughs) and, uh, what was that 13 or 18, 18. Yeah. There were both, I think both years. Yeah. Both of them. They just took a, tickets and if they had an extra and just put it in this tree we're calling it the ticket tree but you know it's the end of the miracle i guess so i i mean unless the guy is totally wired up i guess that's the end of the miracle so um but i do remember waiting for people to have a ticket outside of whatever venue i was going to and you had to meet up at a statue and you had to have all those moving parts connected prior to go and even to the show if you didn't have the ticket. So it, it is, I, f- I really feel like it's the end of the miracle. That's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the end of the miracle. Yeah. Here's a book title. It's, it certainly puts a little bit of pressure on a podcast that's based on <laughs> ticket stubs, but the good news is we've seen a, a lot of shows that should sustain us until we have to start getting concerned about shows that didn't have ticket stubs. (laughs) With that in mind, the premise of Stub Me Down is that Skinny and I have been to a lot of concerts um, over the course of our friendship and prior to the time that we met. And what we do is we pull a ticket stub at random and we use that concert as a jumping off point to talk about the music, our friendship, the things that happen along the way, using the music as a vehicle for experience. So today, Peter is going to be stubbing Skinny and Me down on a show that he was at. So we're really excited about that. With that, Skinny, you, you, you got anything else you want to get into today's show? No, I'm ready to go, man. Peter, are you ready to stub Josh and I down on the show? Absolutely. for us today uh so i thought we'd talk about fish at arrowhead ranch 
on July 20th, uh, 1991. This was a show that I was fortunate enough to attend. The Spin Doctors and a band called The Authority opened, who were both big bands on the scene at that point. I can't wait to ask you how they were. Yeah. <laughs> That's like so one of my biggest questions. I don't even have any big <laughs> questions about this show at all. It was, how was the Spin Doctors? Yeah. Hey, that was a great album, uh, whatever it was back in the day. First of all, well, they have one of the best snare drum openings like ever. Whatever. That's like, if you, whatever it I don't know how it goes. Yeah, two princes. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yeah. two princes. Oh, that's hilarious. Go ahead, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, they, you know, it's it's really interesting because at the Spin Doctors, you know, they got picked up by MTV and they sort of like got spun off into this sort of um, caricature, you know, of, of themselves. And I think part of it, you know, Chris Barron had that image, the lead singer with that sort of winter cap thing that he wore and he looked a certain way and but you know they were such an integral part of the early jam band scene you know they were really a a key part of that community with blues traveler with fish right you know with widespread panic with the aquarium rescue unit the authority was was in there too you know radiators were had been there for a long time but they were sort of in the mix with all these folks too and in fact the next night at arrowhead ranch the radiators opened and another band called tr3 And I think one of the cool things at that time in that early jam band scene is that each of those bands was doing um, something a little different, yet they all brought something very unique to the scene. And I think the Spin Doctors did have a more pop sensibility that obviously translated well, you know, to the masses and to have these hit songs that in a way that, you know, Fish didn't or Widespread Panic didn't. Uh, Blues Traveler did. Right. So they had they had some Blues Traveler, Edie Burkell. Yeah, yeah. they had some songs that translated that way. And interestingly, you know, Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler were very closely linked coming out of the New York City jam band scene and both also managed by a man named David Graham, who people who sort of study this stuff are interested in it might recognize the name Bill Graham, who is a promoter from the West Coast. Uh, He had places called the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West and just a huge, huge legendary concert promoter, very involved with the Grateful Dead and lots of other bands too. This is Bill Graham's son. So David Graham managed Blues Traveler, managed the Spin Doctors and owned Arrowhead Ranch. So when you hear Arrowhead Ranch and you hear those introductions, that's David Graham who's talking, that's Bill Graham's son. So for us coming out of the Grateful Dead scene, being very well aware of Bill Graham's place in that and how important he was, it was like a a sort of handing off of the torch, you know, to this next generation. And that is how it felt at that time to be at that show. Because I will say safely, like most of the people who were at those early fish shows were coming out of the dead scene and a little bit like refugees from it in that, you know, it was smaller, it was more manageable. Again, you could just roll up and get tickets. There was no security hassles. There was no whatever. I don't even think there was security, honestly, at Arrowhead Ranch. And if there was, it it was like they gave, you know, a certain color t-shirt to one of us, you know, but they, they didn't need to be. There was, you know, it was just a bunch of people camping out and going to see music. Again, I, I'm, I'm interested in, um, that transition from the sort of big Grateful Dead scene to then into this early jam band scene and what that felt like to be in there and also how important it was to people like myself. You know, when I saw Fish, when I heard what they were doing, it really felt like such a breath of fresh air and also like, ah, like this place where we're coming from 
doesn't have to end with, you know, Grateful Dead. That's not the end of things. Like there's this whole other offshoot coming. And my God, the, the way it's, you know, just blown up into, you know, the, the next generation and now the next generation is pretty just phenomenal to see. But it was a big deal at the time. You know, it was a big deal to be able to go and see live, exciting, improvisational rock music being done by people who were extremely talented and had their own vision and were very driven and were just, you know, super engaging and were also like not that, you know, just a couple years older than me. So they were like peers too. Right. Yeah, it was really cool. And Arrowhead Ranch sort of was in a lot of ways an oasis of all that. You know, it just sort of brought all those people together and it was a real sense of community. You can see it. You can actually watch the show uh, on YouTube. You can see the crowd and everything like that. And the one thing I tell people to keep in mind is, you know, when you see the front of the stage and you see the crowd there, just know that if that camera pans back, there's not waves and waves of people beyond that. Like that was it. Like what you want to see up front is the crowd. Um, <laughs> right. And yeah. you know, they're, much they're, different environment. Right. I think Trey gives a shout out at one point to like people in the showers, you know, cause like the band was playing, but the showers were also there and you might also be going to get food during it. And there was no in and out. You can't go to your car. There was no, nothing was roped off. You were just there, you know? So it was super loose and uh, it was a really, really good scene. Well, and you talk about a breath of fresh air here. This, not only with Fish, but this particular run of shows was also unique because the Giant Country Horns were playing with Fish for 14 shows. We had Carl Gearhard from the Giant Country Horns join us, and he talked a little bit about the Horns tour overall. He talked a little bit about the Arrowhead Ranch shows, but the uniqueness of Fish with Horns I think adds this whole other element, not only to this particular set of shows that you are at, but the difference in how the music sounds with horns compared to these songs played under their their normal circumstances. Um, so this was the eighth show of that 14-show Horns Tour run that Fish did. And actually, this was the last dinner and a movie that Fish did when they were doing the pandemic dinner and a movie shows. This was the last one that they did was Arrowhead Ranch. So we got to see that footage that you're talking about, Peter, which was really cool because not a lot of people have experienced fish in that type of environment that you're talking about. By the time I got on the bus for fish, it was 1998 and they had a huge following and the Grateful Dead had been done for a few years by then. So a lot of those folks kind of latched on to what fish was doing. So that makes these shows, I think, a little bit more interesting to take a look at because the band was pretty different then. And obviously the catalog was much thinner, much lighter, which makes the statistics from this show, from from the nerdery perspective here, interesting to take a look at. But the energy, the tempo, the pace that they played these tunes was just so much fun. I mean, such a party atmosphere. And they it kind of is a little bit more of a traditional concert. You don't have necessarily the extended jams that you might see in a fish show today, I think in large part because of the presence of the horns, but also a lot of these songs were relatively new. You know, 1990 
1991 vintage, as we'll see as we get into the set here. So um, very cool. And I think it's awesome that it just kind of shows the circular nature that we had Carl on to talk about this tour specifically, not any of the shows specifically. And now we're getting the opportunity to do that here. Yeah, I'm excited, man. I guess I'll run down this first set. So Fish from Arrowhead Ranch on Saturday, July 20th, 1991 in Parksville, New York. Now, where is Parksville, New York? It's uh, basically in the Catskill Mountains. Oh, okay. In the Catskills? Yeah, it's very, it's it's really um, yeah, sort it's of- pretty upstate, yeah. You know, an, an isolated, really just a campground in the Catskills. I never knew that. All woods and nothing else around, yeah. That's cool. I mean, you know, uh, Arrowhead Ranch is something that a lot of people talk about. So I'm glad that we're talking about it today. So set one starts with uh, an intro by David Graham and then Chalk Dust Torture, Foam, the squirming coil into a fast llama and a good one at that. The Okipa ceremony into Susie Greenberg. And this is where the giant country horns come out. The landlady, bathtub gym, my sweet one and then ending the set with a really fire david bowie you know you take a look skinny at that chalk dust torture and obviously we know chalk dust is the quintessential fish staple right right i mean it's the song i've seen the most in my touring experience with fish and this had actually debuted earlier in 1991 in february so fish has gone one time, one period where the gap between Chalk Dust Tortures was over 10 shows and it was 11 and that was from February 1991 to March 1991. Other than that, this song, you go to five shows, you're probably going to see maybe three Chalk Dusts, right? Maybe two, two or three Chalk Dusts in that. I'll never have a problem with Chalk Dust Torture, but the... Me neither. I love it. Yeah. Energy and... Ex- yeah. Oh, it's a great tune. And, you know, it is. You know, Gotta Live While I'm Young. It's the quintessential chasing songs and following a band. And, I mean, that it's it's an anthem for Fish and for kind of the traveling circus that pulls along uh, all these people across the country. And then they've got foam after here. Skinny, I know you're not a big foam fan, but what did you feel about an early foam? You know, I know now it's not really your your thing, but going back and listening to it from a historical perspective. Well, here, and that's what I was going to ask Peter was just like, so I don't have this experience either. So Peter, I didn't start seeing fish until 2000, which is a long time after this. So they had already probably gone through a couple transformations. And after reading about that, uh, in their biography, I, you know, you read about how they practiced, how they played, uh, different transitions that they went into, different things that they learned that they used on stage. And as somebody that would have been at this time 20 years old, right before I turned 21, not only the chalk stuff, but the foam, I mean, like, I guess I would have been kind of awestruck that somebody else was capturing this based on what I know about now. I guess I really want to hear like what you thought as we're around the same age, correct? So as a 20, 21 year old around this time, what you would have thought about it. I know that you had seen shows before and like, were you starting to really, I guess, get it and get into it really hard too, just like the Grateful Dead? Um, I would imagine that you were. Yeah, I mean, you know, yes. And also it was such a, it was such a different thing because again, everybody was, you know, these guys were not much older, so it was, I put it more akin to like, I, you know, had lots of friends in different bands and stuff like that who were, who were very good. 
But these guys were just obviously playing at a different level and they were so driven and they were so focused and they had such a concept, you know, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and they were executing it. And it was really exciting and inspiring to see that, you know, and, I, and again, I'll throw a bunch of the other bands, you know, from the early jam band scene into that same thing. Like they all had their own sound, their own vision, and they were executing it at an extremely high level. So it was, it was just, I, I, you know, the word I keep coming back to is it was exciting. It was really, it was fun to be there at that ground level. I, I went and saw them at bars where you, you could literally just walk in and it was like not, you know, there was just nobody around or whatever. But I remember one time seeing them at, I think it was Clark, Clarkson, it was either Clarkson or St. Lawrence, probably like 92 or 93, somewhere in there. But anyway, again, I, I for some reason I think they had their equipment set up on a flatbed truck even, and I don't. It might have been because it was kind of just like a field um, that they were playing in, and it was near a dorm. And I guess they must have been taking power from the dorms or something. That's awesome. But anyway, I remember seeing running long extension cord. Yeah, I remember <laughs> seeing Trey playing and looking out at us and when i say us like the you know the handful of whatever the small crowd that was assembled there but we were freaks you know what i mean like i like I dreadlocks and top hats and you know we're like we were you know, dead freaks whatever hippie freaks we were up in the north country and we were dancing our asses off and we were having an amazing time and i remember seeing this look in his eye like he was so into seeing us getting off on what they were doing and I look back at that now and I go like, he must have known and felt like they were onto their thing too. Like they were onto the right, they were onto the right flow at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think it was going both ways. I think, you know, we were like, fuck yeah, man, you're doing, you know, this is amazing. This is great. Like, I think they also saw that they were getting a bunch of us off. And again, I'll say like pretty safely, most of the people who were at those early jam band shows and fish shows and stuff were coming from the dead scene. There wasn't a distinction. It was like, because it didn't matter. There was no competition. You know what I mean? You can't, you couldn't compete with the Grateful Dead at this point. You know what I mean? Right. So it was from one thing to the just other. Just the spirit right. of like, oh, cool. We're all on the ground level on this. And is somebody who came into the Grateful Dead scene after it had been going for 30 years. You know, and hearing all the scenes from the deadheads who had been around and seen the dead at these type of venues, it was also really cool to be like, hell yeah, now I'm, you know, now I can be the dick saying, like, you should have been there then. <laughs> you know what I mean? One of the lines in Merch Table Blues that caught me and made me think of exactly the kind of concept you're talking about was um, it was hard to distinguish the audience from the players from the music being played. And it was really, it's really that circular nature of, the energy from the fans because of the music and then the band feeds off of that and it becomes this circle of energy that you don't really know where it ends and where it begins or who is getting what from who. You just know that everybody is getting something from each other. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about the Grateful Dead scene and the fish scene early on. And I always, you know, when any, anybody is like, oh, fish is the new Grateful Dead, I kind of scoff at that because while they both play extended jams and things like that, I think the nature of the bands themselves is very different. And the Grateful Dead always seemed to me to be very serious. And the songs were about 
card games and deals gone bad and trains and stuff like that in this you know very serious kind of poetic nature of Americana, right? And Grateful Dead is the quintessential American rock and roll band. And then you've got Fish and they're singing about weighing your head and foam. And if you look at this, the, the next song that they play, they do Squirming Coil and then Llama. And there's a bathtub gin a little bit later on in the show and it's a little bit silly and it's you know, what what are they singing about what what is who's this person in the bathtub and what are they making and it's got a much sillier nature compared to the songs that the grateful dead performed what was your kind of experience there going from one scene to this new scene and hearing that because i know one of our friends who is no longer with us that was, I think, his big issue with Fish. And he loved the Grateful Dead and saw them hundreds and hundreds of times. But I think when he listened to Fish, he heard that kind of sing-songy, rhymey, slapstick nature of the lyrics and thought, you know, I can't get into this. Even though he recognized that Trey was a good guitar player, the music just never hit him like that. So you're coming from one scene to the next. How did you kind of view the difference there in the seriousness compared to the let's not be serious nature of Fish? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's much easier now to compare Fish and the Grateful Dead than it was then. Because again, at that point, there was no, there just wasn't a comparison. Do you know what I mean? Because like Fish was playing these tiny little spaces and right. the Dead were playing RFK. So obviously each band is really unique. They're, they're distinctive. And I think it's really important when you look at the, the bands too and you start talking about that to see where they came out of each culturally in their time and place. So, you know, they, they each reflect their own time and place of origin. And I don't think it's a, you know, better than or worse than or whatever. Sure. They're just completely different. Totally agree. Their influences are different. You know, the dead were coming out of a, a beat mix scene. They were coming out of, you know, they had folk influences that were very, very heavy in there and country music and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And they, they weren't going to be like influenced by Frank Zappa. You know what I mean? In the way that Fish was. And, sure. You know, but both might be influenced by avant-garde, you know, composers or whatever. So there's there's crossover and then there's like, these guys just had different life experiences growing up. They're coming from a different place. And listen, they each have their own complete vision that they're executing. And I respect any artist who can do that because that's a really hard thing to do. But, you know, at the time, again, there was just no comparison because it was just a completely different thing. So it was more just like, it felt like a little oasis to go and really enjoy, you know, excellent music, but away from a lot of the hassles that had started to take over the dead scene and sort of make it not as fun at that point, you know, to deal with. And there's a ton of bands that were playing in this vein that you've never heard of that were playing around then too, you know, that were also great. So there was all sorts of, um, you know, there was all sorts of this kind of music going on at that time. It was just a really rich era for, for improvisational live music like that. And it was great. It was easy and it was accessible and it wasn't expensive. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Things have changed. <laughs> it's still fun. It's just a little more it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more expensive. It's crazy. You know, we're going up to New York to see them for four nights and you just... 
and I'm thinking about it with my wife right now. Like, you got to have this to spend, and this is what we're doing. And it's just like it's a whole nother. It's it's awesome. Like, we really enjoy the experience because we obviously go to other experiences in New York besides fish. But then that's the culminating activity every night. And boy, am I tired. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, and that's the thing. So it's like you you take that, and then you go like now. You know, there's there's like 20 bands out there that are out there grinding it out. You know, grinding it away and in, in somewhere. And so instead of doing the fish thing, if you went to those bands, that would be the equivalent. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It's easy to compare fish now to the Grateful Dead because they've hit you know that similar level of like now we're playing Madison Square Garden, this rarefied air. Right. But it just at that you know back in the, the, this time that I'm talking about, like when dinosaurs were walking around and stomping on the drum sets. <laughs> <laughs> Cretaceous period. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was just it was it was different, but it was very cool. And in a lot of ways, Arrowhead Ranch was sort of the quintessential spot like that because it was in the middle of nowhere, and it just gathered. Like you weren't there unless you really specifically knew to go there to see fish. You didn't stumble into it. Everybody knew what they were getting into and what they were doing, and so it was a real community thing because like it was very intentional. Like you were there for this scene, you know. And I had this one really weird anecdote that happened up there too, which was after a show, I was wandering down this mountain road and it was really dark. And I don't, don't ask me why I was wandering down this mountain road alone in the dark after the show, but I was taking a little <laughs> stroll, let's say. And this limousine starts driving up the road and it stops right next to me and you got to understand this is a mountain road like nobody was anywhere around so this limousine comes up the window rolls down and the guy leans over and he goes hey man you seen joe walsh and i went joe walsh no i haven't seen joe walsh he's not playing here this weekend <laughs> he's like oh yeah i thought he was gonna play here and i said no no joe walsh isn't playing you go oh, all right hey you like the Ten Thousand maniacs and I said, yeah, yeah, they're okay. The 10,000 Maniacs, sure. Um, this is their guitar player. And some other guy leans over across the limo and sort of waves at me. It's just the guitar player for 10,000 Maniacs. Hey, man, what's going on? Yeah, good to see you. Okay. Uh, all right, man, have a good night. And the window rolls up and the limousine <laughs> drives away. And the limousine drives away. And I'm standing no on this ride? road like, what the hell just happened? That was the... People have said, like, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen in a fish show? Like, that was the strangest thing I've ever seen in a fish show. A limousine in the middle of nowhere asking if I've seen Joe Walsh <laughs> carrying. Right. That's like a, such a non sequitur thing that would happen to like me. I'd be like, I swear to God, that's really that really happened. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a favorite Arrowhead Ranch anecdote that has nothing to do with the band. <laughs> that's awesome. And Skinny was talking about getting tired before. He would definitely be exhausted trying to keep up with this llama that they play, which is just lightning quick. Nothing like the slow llama versions that we have these days, but definitely high powered here. From there, they go into the Okipa ceremony, and then Susie Greenberg and the Horns join the band during Susie. But I kept thinking as I'm listening to this and after reading the book that and then going back to that quote about the music and the players and the audience kind of being one and and the okipa ceremony kind of being this reflection of that where the band kind of perfects their jamming um, by playing it over and over again and then the music 
contributes to the audience and the audience contributes back to the music and it kind of becomes this rite of passage. So I was thinking about that kind of paralleled in the descriptions of the band Laverna and how people responded while they were playing these deep, dark, intense, heavy jams. This is certainly not deep, dark, and heavy. It's very light and fun and energetic, especially once the horns join the band. But I definitely had that feel. And then the landlady that comes in after that, just so crispy with the horns and the statistical point of landlady here. Now, we have probably seen... I don't know if you were there, Skinny. We've seen maybe one or two landladies, but landlady actually is a part of Punch You in the Eye right? that they extracted for a couple of years. And during those years, it was played pretty frequently, almost 200 times from 90 to 94. But then they shelved it as a separate tune, and it was just a part of Punch You in the Eye until 2015. So 768 shows they went, and then they played the landlady as part of the infamous thank you encore that they did at Dick's in September, September 6, 2015. So I thought that that was really cool. And then our man Carl had a pretty sweet trumpet solo in there, which which I absolutely love. Yeah. And then you get into Bathtub Gin, which this is a super dope version of Bathtub Gin, but talk about how a song has evolved. You look at Bathtub Gin now, it looks and sounds nothing like this bathtub gin from from back in the day. Yeah, I mean, what it, what about your favorites, Peter, from like the first set? I mean, is there something that you still, as a a fan and listener to Fish, that really sticks out for you? As far as a first set tune out of these, like, what do you want to hear when you go to a show? I think honestly, what I remember most and what struck me most was when the horns came out because everybody was, you know, the music took a, a turn in that, you know, that really, it, it, they changed everything as far as the sound and, and it, in a cool way, like everybody integrated each other into that. And it became, I don't know, jazzier, more swinging. I don't know what, it, what how do you even describe what happened, but it really changed the flavor of it. And as you can see now, like it changed the flavor in a way that is nothing like what's going on today either. But they were having so much fun you know, the horns were having fun, the band was having fun having them there. And I think just like the energy level that you can feel it shift over into into this different mode and it was playful and yeah. So I, you know, that that as far as a moment, but I will say also like, I've always, always been a big fan of Squirming Coil. I think it's, in fact, there's the epigraph to this book is forge the coin and lick the stamp, little Jimmy's off to camp. So love it. I actually put a, a little quote from, Squirming Coil in the beginning. That's awesome. Merch Table Blues. Um, and to me, that was always like, that signified like a lot of going on tour too. you know, forge the coin and lick the stamp, little Jimmy's off to camp. I'm like, oh yeah, we're off to camp. You know, here we go. Um, and I think- <laughs> Not the camp that your mom pays for. Though. That's right. And, and uh, interestingly enough, like we were all camping at Arrowhead Ranch too. You know what I mean? Right. So it was, it, it was like a summer camp there. It really was. It probably was a summer camp at some point, in fact. Well, after the bathtub gin, they have a quick My Sweet Lawn, another Lawn Boy tune. A lot of Lawn Boy, Lawn Boy, 
obviously comes out in 1990, so that's going to be a pretty popular album as far as what they're playing here. Coil is a Lawn Boy tune, Oki Pond, Susie G, Bathtub Gin, My Sweet One, and then they close the set with a raging David Bowie, about a 10-minute version here. And this jam really gets interesting right around the five, six-minute mark. It just absolutely takes off. Love this early version. And, you know, you look at these shows back in 1991 compared to today, the song times are not like they are today. Like I said earlier, it's a little bit more of a traditional concert as far as, you know, five, six minute tunes with, you know, maybe one or two that are a little bit extended here. But there wasn't a ton of that happening just during the Horns tour overall, just by nature of having the Horns with the band. And Carl had talked a little bit about the process of how they wrote the horn lines, how Trey wrote the horn lines and how they practiced them before they went out on tour. So definitely, if you have not listened to that episode with Carl, I recommend going back and listening to that after hearing about this particular show, just because it'll give a good kind of compendium to how this tour came together. And what did you think, Peter, of the costumes, the outfits that the Horns guys were wearing, those kind of pink and purple tuxedos? Carl tells a great story about how those came to be, but what a sight that must have been as Trey's over there wearing like Bobby-length cutoff jean shorts. (laughs) Yeah. It was definitely so different than anything anybody else had on that it was, you know, it was fun. It was like this cheesy, like, nightclub look in the middle of, like, super camping, you know, everybody just, yeah, cutoffs and t-shirts and stuff like that. So I think it just added to the fun, you know, it was like, I don't want to call it a joke because it wasn't, but, you know, it was like a wink and a nod with that stuff. And then the music was just stellar, though, too. Well, let's review that first set. So set one started with a nice chalk dust torture foam the squirming coil into a fast llama the oki pa ceremony into Susie greenberg the landlady bathtub gin my sweet one and david bowie to close the set yeah definitely a lot of fun here just the horns tour in general was so different for what fish sounds like and added such a different feel to the music. The second set is a lot more of the same. They open the second set with Buried Alive into Reba, Caravan, Dinner in a Movie, Flat Fee, Golgi Apparatus, Stash, The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, Avinu Malkanu, Back Into The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, You Enjoy Myself, and they close the second set with Rocky Top and Encore with Possum. So Buried Alive here, you were hearing probably a lot more in 1991 than you are today. They've only played it skinny 19 times since they returned after the breakup in 2009. Huh, that's crazy. Yeah. You you really get those stats going because I'm like... (laughs) I have no, I'm like, because I've seen it, you know, obviously like Halloween, things like that, if you catch that run, but I'm like, man, I didn't, I would never, thank God for you. Well, that's what I'm here for. And if you actually want to check out an extended version of Buried Alive, they played about a 15 minute one to open a second set in July of 98, July 29th, 1998 in Missouri. So go check that one out if you haven't. Really cool version. I'm a big 98 fan of fish. But the one thing that I thought was interesting about Buried Alive was Trey actually made a comment during a show in 92 that 
Buried Alive was inspired by somebody who we have seen many times, Jimmy Herring, um, who was playing with Aquarium Rescue Unit back in the day. And yeah. so I always I thought that that was interesting that Trey kind of mentioned Jimmy and, and especially since uh, Peter, Jimmy Herring was playing with Phil Lesh and Friends early 2000s, Christian and I were nonstop with Phil and so we saw Jimmy playing and, and the guitarists were Jimmy and Warren Haynes and um, so we've got a soft spot for Jimmy. The Reba that comes next here is awesome. Paige just absolutely keys this jam once they get into it. This does include whistling with special guest whistler Carl Gears Gearhard, which I thought was really cool. I know. that's He must be a really good whistler. You know, I I'll tell you why this version of Reba is verified. My daughter loves this version. I've been playing it for her in the car in preparation for the show, and she's all about it. To see a 12-year-old girl like something that her dad likes, that's definitely pretty cool, because most of the time they're like, you're so stupid. (laughs) After the Reba, they play Caravan, which is a Duke Ellington song, Skinny. Talk about some statistics here. They played this 43 times, but they haven't played it since 96. The horns fit in perfectly here. So, Peter, I mean, you're getting just a great mix of tunes that the horns really accentuate and here and then into dinner and a movie and i mean it must have just been such a great party you know there are no there are no breathers here there are no slowdown tunes where you know there's not a waste or there's not a velvet sea those songs didn't exist at this time it just adds a completely different vibe to this type of show and i think it kind of goes back to what you're talking about before about it being new and fresh these songs really carry that energy through and you can hear it when you go back and and listen to it you kind of get that feeling you forgot when you listened back to the show yeah you know it's it's interesting because like i said a lot of the people that i discovered fish with were music students so i hadn't really discovered jazz and gotten into listening to jazz um, at that point but they all had and they knew what these guys were doing as far as influences and different you know phrasing that they would bring in and even things that they would cover and so forth at this really high musical levels and they were really you know i remember them being like talking about them as far as just the musicianship that stage for sure was like well jazz is like the best you can be you know jazz is the best you can do musically and this this was their sort of you know feeling at that time and so they were super impressed that these guys would play like jazz standards you know they, they would throw them into into a set and talk about you know jazz as an influence and so that stood out to me in that you know there were certainly those elements in the grateful dead but not so overtly brought to the forefront they were actually doing jazz tunes so yeah it was really cool again it was like oh okay this is different but it's also nodding to you know the roots of of improvisational music fish really shows here i mean in this show in particular the range that they had even at this early 
juncture of their career because they're playing straight up rock and roll. They're playing, you get some bluegrass here. You have the jazz elements, as you said, and they kill all of it. You know, that's one element that the Grateful Dead, they could play the bluegrass and the country style and the rock and roll and stuff like that. But the way they did it, I think very, very different from from Fish. And, and I definitely feel like Fish has that type of range that maybe Grateful Dead didn't quite achieve. Yeah, you're, you're definitely going to set off some alarm bells with that, but that's okay, because I agree with you. You know, one thing that the Grateful Dead really didn't do, which Fish does a lot, and especially in this show in particular, then they kind of were rooted in it for a, a while. It sounds like, from the shows that I've listened to in earlier time periods, in the 1.0 era, if you want to call it that, the ability to tease different things. So there's a lot of teases in this you can go back and listen to them and, and go obviously on fish.net to see what the teases are. But like you're playing a Duke Ellington tune and then you're teasing Manteca in that. That's something that the Grateful Dead didn't do. Listen, they, they probably did tease some stuff or when they're tuning up. And if you saw Jerry back in the day, like maybe after he had smoked his camel unfiltered, might tease something before they jump into the next tune. But they weren't necessarily teases, which is they're, they're all over this show. And the other thing is, which I still, I'm, I'm guess I'm circling back to to you, Peter, is like songs like Flat Fee. I got to be honest, everybody, like I had never even, I didn't know what that was until I listened to it. I had no idea. Flat Fee. I didn't know what that was. Skinny, were you, you went to a Jones Beach show in 2009. Correct. Right? That, the that first summer. night, yeah, it was raining like pee. Like, I mean, because the last time that Flat Fee has made any sort of appearance, it was teased at Jones Beach on June 5th, 2009. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I wonder if that was the Jones Beach show that you were at. So you have to go back and take a look because I got to look. I would In be 2009, interested. I was there. I know you went up there solo, I think, to one of those shows. And... No, I went up with a buddy of mine, Adam Blow. Yeah. Adam Blow and I went up for one night of that. Uh, it was raining I, and shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, it was horrible. But you know, we stuck it out and saw it. I mean, it's fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Leave. Uh, but that was interesting. Yeah. I, I saw that they haven't played that in. I mean, they haven't played that since 1991. So they played it a week later um, after this show, and then it's been shelved ever since. So um, I thought that that was that was interesting. But that was actually the first tune that Trey wrote horn lines for. A little interesting hmm. tidbit there. They follow up Flat Fee with a song that we are big fans of here on Stubby Down, Golgi Apparatus. And that was one of the cool things that we had when we had Carl on. He played the the horn line for Golgi for us, and we use that as our, our opening music. Big fans of that tune here. And then a real nice eight-minute stash they played. And it's interesting to see from a statistical perspective how the band's catalog, as it has expanded, has changed the way some of these tunes make it into sets. You know, you're talking about Chalk Dust, which has never taken any sort of a break from a fish set. Then you get into Stash, and Stash was pre is pretty consistently played, although now you might get maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 shows in between Stash versions. Back in the day, it was maybe like one or two. Um, so I always thought it was interesting to see how a song that was a staple kind of becomes a little bit less of a staple as the band's catalog has grown. And if you look at 
Stash now. Stash hasn't been played in 19 shows, and that's the biggest gap that they have had for Stash since 98. So I always thought that that was interesting. Look at you. Like, what, what's gotten into you, yeah. man? You're here. Dude, fishnet, man. I, I was geeking out. Hole. I went in the wormhole last Oh, my God. Between that and the, the dead and gone and all these people that died on Dead Tour and, you know, getting into some of the statistics here. And that's why I love these early shows because, you know, most of the shows that I have seen are in the 3.0, 4.0 era, if you will. I didn't start seeing fish until 98. So my 1.0 era, while I did have two years of it, going back and, and you know, you, you have a recency bias when it comes to sure. the music that you tend to listen to. And you try and listen to as much as you can, but you get stuck on maybe the shows that you were you were at or some of the more recent things because the catalog is a little bit bigger now. But going back and seeing where the band was at that time and how they've changed statistically is is something that I, me and the nerds in the nerditorium are are busy dissecting on a regular basis. Uh, well, we're gonna have to get you a bigger space because yeah, well, getting out of control. <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't go too much into the statistics on the man who stepped into yesterday. That goes into Avinu Malkanu, back into the man who stepped into yesterday. Rarely do you get an Avinu Malkanu that is not sandwiched between a man who stepped into yesterday, although it does happen occasionally. July of 2003, here we go again, Skinny, they went into a walls of the cave after Avinu Malkenu. And then in uh, more recently, September of 2021, they went into Wikipog there uh, at Shoreline. So they didn't go back into the man who stepped into yesterday, which if you are not familiar, is a part of Gamehenge. Again, imagine the Grateful Dead singing about the land of lizards and people riding multi-beasts and the helping friendly book and stuff like that. I think it kind of, that's that silly nature of fish. Although you can certainly find meaning in there, but some of the purists might take issue. <laughs> well, and then Avino Malcano, am I pronoun- I didn't want to even read this set because I knew I wasn't going to pronounce it right. So, like, <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. All right. But it's like our father, our king. So that's going into, have you ever seen that performed or that prayer performed like that? Sometimes at a Jewish wedding, you'll see that once in a while. I have, uh, if you've ever been. I don't think I've ever been to a Jewish wedding. Never been to a Jewish wedding? The interesting thing about Jewish weddings is they actually get married before the ceremony. Uh, I think it's called the ketubah. And then like they actually sign the marriage contract. So like all the rest of it's cute. Yeah, I know. All guy teaches at a Catholic high school, everybody. <laughs> they got to know about the Old Testament. But That's right. you know, I think it's interesting that they stick that in the middle of the man who stepped into yesterday. Not absolutely not one of my favorites because of its ambient nature. And then they break into that and then break back into the ambience. I think a lot of times I the same with the Grateful Dead. And, and Peter, I don't know if you felt this way. Sometimes I wouldn't describe the man who stepped into yesterday as ambient. I wouldn't say it's got a lock and key to some sort of hook you can get onto. No, but it's the same every time, whereas ambience can be... The nature of it, all right. I mean... Oh, the nature of it, all right, I see. (laughs) So, Peter, I mean, that kind of stuff, I mean, is that something that you like, that that nature of Fish and the Grateful Dead? Because sometimes I have to tell you, I don't know if it's just me getting older, but even back in the day, I kind of... 
I would turn maybe and talk quietly. I know that's like forbidden now <laughs> to talk during a concert. Chomper. Right, but skinny's a chomper. Uh, or just try to check something else out that was going on, uh, you know, on stage. Did you ever feel that way or were you just hooked into it no matter what? You know, I'll say I always, I one of the first recordings that I had of Fish was of Trey doing his, I guess it was his senior thesis. Um, the man who stepped into yesterday, the whole cycle of it, you know, and that a great recording and it was on cassette and I swear you could just hear him breathing and, you know, you could hear him talking into the mic and the whole thing. But when I was in college, I had to get an operation that took me out for a semester. And that was one of the tapes that I had when I was recovering. And I was just trying to like sort of walk a little bit and get around or I had a lot of downtime and I listened to that over and over and over. And I have always, you know, as, as somebody who's interested in writing, who's interested in narrative and storytelling, I'd always like bands that had um, had that sort of vision. So like, you know, Pink Floyd, for example, you know, doing these sort of thematic sure. albums. And I was really impressed by that. Again, I think the um, ambition of that and the vision of that, I thought was really, really impressive. And that so that was one of the early things that, that made me interested in what Fish was doing. And because I like storytelling, you know, I think of it as him just telling a story then. And at that point, you're allowed to do every, anything. You know, you're allowed to bring in these lizards and you can bring in all this stuff. Dead told stories in a very different way. But I would equate this to like, you know, they started to, they would link up songs. So they would play like Estimated Prophet into Eyes of the World or um, Scarlet Begonias and Fire on the Mountain. You know, they pair these songs. China Cat Rider. Yeah. yeah, they would become their own like little suites of music and they would, you know, transpire over a long time. But there would be this very, two very different stories told that would sort of merge together. You know, in a lot of ways you like, you either like that or you don't. You know what I mean? This is why, what can you, what would you give somebody if you were interested wanted to get them interested in fish or you wanted to get them interested in the dead? And my response is always like, why would I want to do that? You know, because if you're, <laughs> if you're gonna, you know, if you're sort of partial to this kind of music, you're going to find it. And if not, there's really no reason to force it on anybody because sure. you know, there's just too many other things out there to listen to, but I like it. You know what I mean? I, I like, I always thought that that, you know, those interludes were, were cool. And being old school like I am, too, I always like when they pop up in sets, you know, now. Like, I like to hear those those early tunes come up. Well, talk about an early an early tune that has stood the test of time. You Enjoy Myself follows The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday. This is the longest song of the show. You still have the horns playing here. I loved that Trey slipped in the, have you seen Junior's grades between right. the the God and the shit part? And Skinny, I know we've talked a lot about your love of You Enjoy Myself and hearing it with the horns is it's just again it adds that that new wrinkle and changes this tune just enough to make it exciting and interesting and something different than what we are used to and i absolutely thought this was a smoke inversion yeah i liked it too a lot especially with the horns i think it makes it it makes it different and the construction and the arrangement of that song can be changed even though it's pretty much the same with the lead up and the build and then the breakdown usually the breakdown is is what changes every time and can be variable but with the horns it just makes it even more variable which i really really like i'm not gonna say it yet but i want to say that that's got to be my favorite 
And I know that's stupid to say, like, wow, they played it so many times, over a thousand times, but it's just so good. It's just so constructed so well, and, and it's so joyful. I, I don't know how... I'll never get sick of hearing that. Like, if that was my yeah. desert island song, you could only have one song that you could listen to for the rest of your life, or whatever, I would choose that. Well, and it's, I think, what fish sounds like, is you enjoy myself. Just the the, the structure of the song, the lyrics, the feeling you get, the energy that it portrays, I think, is fish personified sonically, I guess, if you will. They they close the, the set here with Rocky Top. Page really takes center stage on this one. I just absolutely love listening to him here. And then I think this goes back to what Peter was talking about before with the range. You know, they're playing jazz, they're playing bluegrass. They can incorporate and change from one to another seamlessly. I mean, you've got You Enjoy Myself, which is, you know, much more exploratory. And then instantly they can switch gears and go into a rocky top here. And then the possum to close the show. Skinny, you mentioned some of the teases. There's a number of teases in here. You can catch the Dixie tease pretty, pretty quickly. But again, has the band kind of sprinkling these other themes into a song. And they just do it so seamlessly, even back in the early 90s which man i just absolutely loved listening back to this and comparing that to the experience that we have today and i thought peter's remembrances of this show really kind of struck me as so poignant because of the difference in what fish is now and what fish was in the early 90s peter what was the last fish show that you went to oh god um it was either in Canandaigua or it was in Darien Lake, and I don't remember where. It was somewhere around upstate New York. I can tell you the last festival I went to was Magnaball. Oh, we were there. Okay. That's great. Yeah, no, we were at Magnaball. That was my last show, and I, I'm really, uh, I'm a little hard pressed to remember what my last show was. To be honest with you. All right. Well, just to review the second set from Fish at Arrowhead Ranch on July 20th, 1991, they opened the set with Buried Alive into Reba, Caravan, Dinner in a Movie, Flat Feet, Gogi Apparatus, Stash, The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, into Avinu Malkenu, Back Into The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, a raging version of You Enjoy Myself with the horns, and Rocky Top to close the set, and Possum filled the encore slot here. Giant Country Horns, a big part of this show, as this was in the middle of the Horns tour. Very cool stuff, very unique if you're not familiar with this period of Fish's history. Highly recommend going back and taking a listen. Peter, man, hey, thank you so much for joining us today, talking about not only uh, this show, but your most recent book, Merch Table Blues. Um, when is that coming out? It is. You can pre-order it now. So you can go on to wherever you order books or go into your local bookstore and pre-order it. And then the copies will start arriving to you in early May. Awesome. Definitely check out Merch Table Blues. A quick read, a lot of fun, and really, I think, an interesting exploration of the music scene from a, a pretty cool perspective of being on the inside of a band, being on the inside, but being on the outside, you know, because the the main character wasn't a 
part of the band per se, but had an inside look at some of the experiences of the band. And so I really enjoyed that. Definitely worth your time. Definitely check that out. And you can also go to peterconnors.com and check out some of his other works, including the book that Skinny mentioned earlier, Growing Up Dead. So Skinny, I might have to borrow that from you the next time I see you. Yeah, I got it. And then maybe we should do what Peter said as we start just passing it around along with Animal Farm. <laughs> so, Peter, I just wanted to say again, thanks so much. This is a great connection and we're really happy to have you on. And, and we really like to talk about different experiences and coming from you as a writer. You know, that's just an amazing thing. And, and uh, you should be very proud of your work. And, and we are proud to talk to you and, and have a lot of gratitude. So thank you again. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. So Josh, let's just give a shout out, obviously, to our partners on The Lot by Primal Soup. The Lot by Primal Soup is an online community where you can shop for goods for any band that you're looking for and any kind of jewelry or any kind of candle or body wax or is body wax one of the things i don't even know I don't even it know doesn't what that is. i don't i don't either please don't uh you know send me any inquiries about what body wax is i just made that up <laughs> look wax uh, there you go somebody's a gonna steal it idea for all you. right well but the lot by primal <laughs> soup we're so glad to be partnered with them so please make sure that you check them out at thelot.com if you need to get anything for this upcoming tour. And last but not least, we want to also mention Scott Mitchell from Fan Designs, who is really pushing out some goose stuff. I think our friend Ryan Storm over there is really going to like some of the stuff that he is creating. Some really new cool hats, cool shirts, and I still haven't listened to goose yet. <laughs> Those hats that uh, Fan Designs just dropped are pretty dope. I like. I might have to get that one that that says Funk on it. It definitely hits me where I where I wear my hats. But we got shows that are coming up quickly and summer tour. So make sure you get out there, visit these awesome partners of ours, and get your new gear. If you want to continue the conversation, you can check us out on social media. We are on Twitter at stub underscore me underscore down. And we are also on Instagram at the same address, stub underscore me underscore down. We'd like to thank Peter Connors for joining us here today, telling us about his experience at Arrowhead Ranch in 1991 and his work as an author. That was just a lot of fun. We are always grateful to make some new friends and hey, we are everywhere, man. It's awesome. Skinny, awesome job. Thank you so much. As always, you are the best in the biz. And thank you all for checking us out one more time here on Stummy Down. And we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and down to the path. Peter, thanks, man. Take it easy, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you later. Bye.